as you think about Missions Month and all that's involved in that. And I want to say thank you to Pastor Rice for the invitation. And of course, uh, this church, and um, I, I go a long ways with this church, back to many, many of the early days of Anchor Baptist and your former pastor. And I'm glad that he's here tonight. And we're excited about what God is doing. And the video, of course, you just uh, heard a little bit about uh, the ministry called Spiritual Leadership Asia. Uh, this ministry really was kicked off in June of 2019. And um, Everybody knows what's happened after 2019, right? COVID happened. And so our ability to get to Asia has been hampered. I, we had every plan of, of going in uh, March of 2020, but uh, you know, COVID was in full swing. And then we thought, well, we can push it back and we'll get there in 2021. And uh, then I was supposed to be there last week and COVID was still the protocols and the gathering limits and all those type of things was still a problem. And so uh, we have not been able to get to Asia to hold some of our conferences and really uh, connect with some of our, our group that we really need to connect with. With that being said, though, we are seeing God do some great things through the ministry, even though we have not been able to get on the ground there to really uh, touch the lives the way we want to. Uh, we are, uh, you heard in the video that we had a plan uh, as we launched this ministry of supporting nationals. I'm glad to be able to share with you that last year we supported 60 nationals through this ministry, and uh, we're thankful for the Lord's enabling. So we're out sharing this uh, ministry with churches. They got a vision of how they could have a, make a real difference in the 1040 window. And then just this year, we have launched, besides uh, supporting nationals, we have launched what we're calling the 1040 Bible Project, in which we are trying to flood that area of the world with the Word of God. And if anything can make a difference in this world, it's God's Bible and uh, God's Word. And it's very difficult to establish a church and disciple folks if you don't have Bibles to do that with. And so we are right now raising funds. Cleveland Baptist Church, the church I pastored there in Cleveland for a number of years, uh, we kicked that off this year and uh, through our Christmas offering and gave $60,000 towards the initial phase of 160000 So we are now trying to raise another $100,000 to help with this first phase of Bible printing and shipping. So uh, I'm not here seeking any personal support, just want to let you know that, but we are seeking support for either nationals or to help with Bibles or both. And so a national can be supported, think about this, for $50 a month. You say, well, how far does that go? Well, when you're living on $500 a month or less, that makes a big difference, doesn't it? And so when we come alongside these nationals who are there on the ground doing the work uh, with $50, it's really a boost to them. It's a 10% increase of what they're receiving or what they need to get to the field and do this work. So how many folks know when we talk about the 1040 window exactly what we're talking about? How many folks would say, I know what the 1040 window is? Okay, there's a few. I like to explain it because uh, we, we try to just maybe help folks just understand this concept. The 1040 window, I don't know who came up with the term, but really it is a geographical location. So if you go home tonight and you find an atlas of the world or you go to your globe that you maybe have in, in your home someplace and go to the west side of Africa, go to 10 degrees north of the equator, there's a mark there, and then go draw a line straight up to 40 degrees north, and then begin to move to the east. Uh, that would be, as you're moving your globe, it'd be you're moving your globe to the left, and so you're going towards the east. You're going to carry that, that line all the way through the Middle East. When we get to Asia, we drop that line down to 10 degrees south to 40 degrees north. And in that particular box, you have a third of the world's land mass. So a third of the world's real estate or land mass that people can live on, but on that land mass lives two-thirds of the world's population, over five billion souls live in the 1040 window. We are focusing on the Asian portion of that, and so we are uh, going every place kind of really east of Africa. Uh, we're not really working in the Middle East, but we are focusing on the Asian portion of that. So you get to the most populous countries like 
Uh, you have um, over a billion souls that live in India. You have over a billion souls that live in China. Uh, we have Indonesia. We have, uh, you have uh, uh, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Myanmar, the Philippines, uh, South Korea, North Korea, uh, all these nations. So when we think about this 1040 window, we need to understand that it's a very populated area. 50 cities, over a million people each. 35 of the largest metropolitan areas in the world are located in the 1040 window, many of them having over 25 million people living in that, those metro areas. Folks stacked on top of each other. It's the home of false religions, Islam, Buddhism, atheism, uh, and uh, very little biblical Christianity. It's the home of resistance to Christianity and closed countries that don't want missionaries to come in. But we still believe that God loves the world, and he told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And we believe that the Asian national, of course, can do that which no American can do, go places no American can go and stay places where no American can stay. Now, they may do so under persecution, but they're willing to go. They just need help and encouragement to do so. So that's what really Spiritual Leadership Asia is all about. We are a, a really come alongside ministry that encourages and helps and strengthens the national to do what God's given them to do. We certainly believe that America is still probably the most populated or most prosperous nation in the world. There may be others more per capita that have more than us, but the average American lives a pretty decent life. And there are hundreds and thousands of independent Baptist churches in the United States of America that if they just knew what they could do to help these folks do what God's called them to do, they'd be happy to do so. And so our job really is to really go across the face of this country. Uh, my, my title is the North American Director, and primarily I visit churches like yours, raising awareness and helping folks know how they can have a part in what God is doing. And of course, our plan is a couple times a year to make a trip to Asia to help have conferences and and to lay groundwork and strategize with our partners over there. But again, just pray for us that we can get there. Uh, this week, because we couldn't get there, we had a prayer focus. If you're on social media, perhaps you saw some of it, but for seven days, and it ended really today's the seventh day, we asked people, and literally last year we had over 10,000 people join us every day at 10.40 a.m. or 10.40 p.m. to pray for the 10.40 window, that God would do something very special there and raise, uh, again, just an army of laborers to walk across that. And so every day this week, we had special prayer focuses that if you signed up, you'd get into your inbox. If you'd like to visit our website, you can go there in the back, and we've got some literature there, prayer cards and some cards. And you go to the website, there'll be a place where you can sign up uh, tonight if you want to get into your inbox about twice, a, uh, about every other month, just some information about what we're doing and, and how, uh, what God is doing there in the 1040 window. So please, uh, please do that. Thank you so much for having us. And we are praying to be a blessing and a help to you. And it's our prayer tonight that God will do that. So take your copy of God's Word. And if you would, join me in the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. Now before we get there, before I read the text, I just want to say that I'm, so, I, I, I'm sure that when I say this tonight, many of you would be familiar with this verse. It's found in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, where it says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder, of them that diligently seek him. So one of the most transparent ways you and I demonstrate our faith is in this matter of our obedience in giving. 
You know, we really, we demonstrate faith by many, many things. Being in church tonight is a demonstration of your faith. You believe that God is wanting you to, you know, he said in his word, so you're demonstrating faith. Um, many of you today perhaps dropped an envelope in the, in the uh, basket as it went by and perhaps had a mission offering and a, and a church offering, but we're demonstrating our faith through our giving. So when we take something as tangible and necessary as our financial resources, and commit a portion of that to the work of God. By doing so, we're making a statement about what we think is important or what we value. Uh, what is important to me? How do I value this? And, and so by my giving, I, I show what I believe about like that. Someone has said, show me your checkbook, if you even have one today. Most people don't even have one. My day, everybody had a checkbook. But show me your checkbook or show me your budget, so to speak, and I will show you what you worship. In other words, what you spend your money on, what you, where you invest your dollars tells me what's important in your life and tells others what's important in your life. So uh, how we spend our money states what we value or what we think is essential. Now I want to challenge you tonight this idea of grace giving because this month of missions is really about seeing a need and how do we play a part in that. Well, there's two ways you can do, well, actually three ways you can do that. Number one, you can pray. Number two, you can give. Number three, you can go, right? So uh, we can be involved in this, but we uh, we're, we're, we're to challenge you tonight about faith or grace giving in the regards to missions. Now, we find a story about two people living by faith in the text that we're going to read tonight. Elijah, of course, in chapter 17, is the prophet that's introduced to us in verse number one. And he is given a ministry or a duty to fulfill, and he must trust God to do what God has called him to do. And he's, we're also introduced in this chapter to a widow. She is the most unlikely person that we would choose to encourage, to sustain, to encourage and to sustain this particular prophet. Yet God was going to do, do so through her. God will, think about this, God will make this woman face her fears. You know, I'm amazed at how many times as I read through the Bible, how many times I hear God make the statement, fear not. You know, we live in a time in which many people are fearful. I mean, I don't know, every time I go to the gas pump, I'm a little fearful, aren't you? What am I going to find this time when I go there? How many, how many nickels or dimes or, or, or quarters has it gone up this week since I filled up the last time? And, you know, we're seeing this exponential growth of fuel. And that's a little bit scary when we think about it. Or you go to the grocery store and you see the increased cost of things at the grocery store and thinking, you know, I've got limited resources. How, how's this going to work? Well, God makes us face our fear. And he says, don't fear, fear not. I'm, I'm God, I, I can control things. And, and so he makes her face her fear. And, and, and again, uh, he will, he's going to do something to stretch her. So uh, she will have to exercise faith in what God has promised so that she can survive. And I believe God wants us more than survive. He wants us to thrive. He wants to do some great things in our life. So let's look, if you would, at this text tonight. And we'll begin reading in verse number one. And if you're able to stand, let's stand for a moment as I read this text. You follow along. And then we're going to walk through this text together tonight as we talk about how God works in our hearts and our lives. The Bible says in verse number one, Elijah the Tishbite was of the inhabitants of Gilead and said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be due nor reign these years, but according to my word. The word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, 
and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. And he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. How many folks have heard of DoorDash? God had Raven Dash before there was ever DoorDash, all right? Personal delivery, right to the doorstep by the ravens. So uh, the Bible says there, and the ravens brought him bread and flesh, in verse number six, verse number seven, and it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee the Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of, the, of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray, there a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thy hand. And she said, As the Lord God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it. Notice the phrase, and die. And Elijah said unto her, Here it is, fear not. Elijah said, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days, and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this evening. Thank you for this Missions Emphasis Month here at Anchor Baptist Church. I thank you, Lord, for this church and its history. And, Lord, I thank you for the faithfulness of God's saints who are a part of this church. And I pray tonight, Lord, that you would stir us and challenge us through your word. Lord, I, as we walk through a very familiar portion of Scripture, may you make it come alive to us tonight. May you challenge our faith in this day and age in which we're living May the application by the Holy Spirit be very vivid to each one of us tonight. We pray these things and ask them in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we want to we talk about, you know, God stretching us. And faith giving does that. It stretches us. Well, let me, let me point out some things here that when we think about this idea of being involved in what God wants us to do, what should we look for? In other words, what should we be looking for when we think about this idea of, okay, you, you want me to give, why should I? Well, notice first of all that this faith giving or this grace giving begins with a legitimate need in the work of God. So as we read verses 1 through 8 that we looked at just a moment ago, we obviously are introduced to this, uh, this prophet Elijah. Now prior to this verse number 1 in chapter 17, we don't know anything about Elijah. We, we, we have no history of him whatsoever. And all of a sudden there's this great need in this world because Ahab is a wicked king and he's married to a sweet little woman by the name of Jezebel and she's making the life of, of God's people in Israel very, very miserable. And so God says, okay, I'm going to raise up a prophet. And so he says, Elijah, you're the man. You go in, you speak to Ahab, and you tell him that I'm bringing judgment to bear here on this nation. So he speaks these words. The sin of Israel was a sin of disregard of God. They were ignoring him. 
God had a covenant with these people that he said, I'm not going to put up with you just living any way you want to. And by the way, did you know as a, if you're saved tonight, you can't live just any way you want to? You, you can, but there's a price to pay for a, being a child of God. In fact, if you're here tonight and you say, well, I can live any way I want to, and there's no problem with me, I'm not convicted, and there's no chastening, then I would run to this altar tonight and get saved because you're not saved. The Bible is clear that children of God cannot live any way they want to live. And if they live in disregard of God, they're going to face the chasing hand of God. And so God said to these people, you're my people. You're not living the way I want you to live. And so I'm going to bring judgment. The sin, of course, brought this judgment of no dew, no rain. A severe drought would hit the land for a prolonged period of time. You know as well as I do, you go through a drought very long, it's going to have an impact. Food supplies would begin to wither away. You can't grow crops without rain or without a water supply. It takes more than sunshine to make things grow. You've got to have water to make that happen. And so there's a severe drought. And, and so the food supplies would be depleted. No, no doubt people would die. And according to the text, this man of God, Elijah, was also affected by this drought. God instructs him to leave Samaria and hide himself by a place called the Brook of Cherith. And I, I don't know exactly where that's at. I suppose that it can be found. I, I, I've been to the Holy Land five different times. I've never been to the Brook Cherith. But I have this idea. It's a little tucked away place, maybe in a, in a kind of a barren area of the world. And, and, and so he sat there, and the Bible says he, he drank of the brook. So this was good water. It was, it was sufficient to take care of his needs. And man, God said, okay, I, I, I'm, I've commanded the ravens to sustain you. Now, I don't know what the ravens brought, but whatever they brought, it was good stuff. This, this prophet ate bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening. He, he, he's not like us Americans. He had three round meals a day. He had two, and it was sufficient. So he had bread and flesh in the morning, bread and flesh in the evening. But the Bible says over a period of time, what does it say there? The brook dried up. This man of God is sitting there, and the brook dries up. God didn't keep Elijah from feeling the effects of the drought. He felt it. God could have, think about this, God could have continued to take care of Elijah here at this brook. He could have, but God's going to stretch Elijah's faith too. So this man of God, think about him. I want you to think about him tonight. He has this legitimate need. What's this legitimate need? Well, he's God's man with a mission to accomplish. God said, he, God had sent him to Elijah, to, to Ahab, and he said, uh, you tell him there's not going to be any dew or rain except you come back and tell him again according to your word. So that means to me that Elijah has to be sustained. He has to live long enough to fulfill God's plan and purpose. He can't die before that. So he's got a legitimate need because he's the man of God to take care of the work of God. At a point, he'll go back and face Elijah and confront the waywardness of this nation. Now, it's important to note with all, almost without exception that God has chosen his work in this world to be dependent upon, upon his people giving. Whether it's tithes, like some of you perhaps gave tonight, or an offering to missions, or a special offering, God expects that the giving of his people will fund the legitimate needs of his work. The work of the ministry, your church, the proclaiming the gospel across the face of the world is serious business. It's God's business. Can I, can I tell you that the work of the ministry of the church is more important than the work of the United States of America? Boy, we waste so much money in our country. We throw so many dollars at things that are just a waste. 
And yet the work of God many times lacks funding, lacks the, the, the ability to, to do what needs to be done because God's people aren't giving what they should give. It, it's serious business. God has ordained in these important ministries to be funded by the people of God. God commands his people to give to meet the needs. When I pastored the church there in Cleveland, Ohio, maybe some of you have been up to Cleveland Baptist Church, and you'll know that it was a fairly substantial work, a fairly significant work. The budget of the ministry was substantial. We had salaries, utilities, uh, insurances, and at times building payments, much like your church. Uh, we, uh, when the utility company sent a bill to our church, not Brother Shane, you'll probably understand this, because you went through a pastoral transition, you were on the staff here, and weren't the pastor when Brother Jacobs was. And I don't know how that worked, but I remember I, I grew up at Cleveland Baptist Church and went on the staff in 1978. I had no idea that I'd ever become the pastor, but after I'd been there for a while, the pastor started talking about it. He said, man, I'm going to groom you to be the successor here. If that's God's plan, the people's will, and, and we believe that that's what God's going to do, then, then you're going to, that's going to happen. And you know, I, I would, I, all those times I was an associate, then I became a co-pastor, I never worried about the budget. Not one time didn't bother me in the least, you know. I wasn't responsible when the, when the offering was counted, whether there was enough money that week to take care of things. Well, September the 3rd, 1995, guess what happened? Dr. Roy Thompson stepped aside and they laid hands on me, installed me, and I became the pastor of the Cleveland Baptist Church. Now, I got to tell you, it felt like a ton of bricks fell on my shoulders. That next day, I walked in the office and his office was empty. And all of a sudden now, the financial responsibilities, the staff responsibilities, all that stuff that in before I'd never thought too much about. Now, it wasn't like he wasn't preparing me, but I, I, that wasn't my deal. You know what I'm saying? Now, all of a sudden, it was. And they walked in one day and handed me an electric bill for $10,000. My eyeballs about popped out of my head. And I'm thinking, how on earth are we going to, you know, deal with this? And so we had uh, utility bills, and, and, and we had, and, and by the way, did you know the utility company expected to be paid? It wasn't like they looked at our church and said, well, you're a charity, you're doing good work, we'll just forgive you this month. No, no, that's not the way they work. They send you power, they expect you to pay for it, Right. So we had a staff, we had a Christian school, we had about 45 people on our staff. That meant they had mortgage payments or rent payments to make, they had groceries to buy, they had children to clothe and, and to feed and take care of, they had other responsibilities, and they're looking to me as the pastor of the church to make sure that when it was time, they got a paycheck. We sent missionaries out of our church and we partnered with others and they were depending on our church to send them support so they could do the work that God had given them to do. You get the, point, the, the idea that God has ordained that legitimate needs are met by the people of God as they give. If it wasn't a legitimate need, then you have no responsibility to give. But when God says give because there's a gospel that needs to be preached. Give because there, uh, there's a work that needs to be done. Then it's a legitimate need, and then God has an expectation that you and I would step up and do that. So we give because of a legitimate need. Secondly, what you notice, God blesses individuals that hear and obey his voice. Would you notice that? As I look at this text in verse 9, we find that God said, Get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon. And dwell there. So here's God's instruction to, to Elijah. He said, okay, go to the brook. You sit there. And he was taken care of. And all of a sudden the brook dries up. And God said, okay, I'm not done with you yet. I still got to sustain you. 
Though the brook is dried up, I, I've already made a decision. There's a place you're going. By the way, did you know that Zarephath is not in Israel? Zarephath is in Zidon. Do you know what country that is? That's where, that's where Jezebel came from. God was sending the man of God down to the territory where Jezebel came to, from. And the sweet Jezebel, as ungodly and wicked as she was, God said, hey, Elijah, you go to, to Zarephath. There's a widow woman I have commanded to sustain thee or to take care of you there. Wow. Elijah had to humble himself and submit himself to the plan of God. I don't, I suppose every man can identify with this tonight. As a man, I, it's my responsibility to take care of things, right? I, I feel like I, I, when, when I got married to my wife, I felt like, okay, I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to take care of her. Uh, I, I felt like when I had kids, it was my responsibility to make sure they were clothed and had food and, and educated, and then I could kick them out of my house once I got them then. Got the, but but I, I feel like as a man, it's my responsibility to take care of things. Here God says to this man of God, this prophet, who just had confronted a king, telling him that, hey, no do or reign, God says, I'm sending you down, and I'm going to have somebody take care of it. Well, okay, you're going to send me to some millionaire's house. It's going to have a nice plush bedroom where you're going to sleep, you know, on satin sheets. No, no. God said, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. How humbling that had to be for him to humble himself. This widow woman, think about it, had to hear God and then respond in faith to do what she was instructed to do. It wasn't easy for her either. When I was a boy growing up in Cleveland, my, my father... From the time I can remember, my dad was always a car guy. He was a mechanic. Uh, he, early in his, his, the early days of his, his me growing up in, his, uh, in that home, my dad was a truck driver. And, and, but my dad had grown up in the 19, well, he was born in 1929, and so he, he went to high school and graduated in the 1940s. And, you know, it was kind of the, uh, the era of, of cars. And, and, and my dad just really loved those, those old cars. And so one day, my dad came home from work, and he had seen a car that was parked out by the road on his truck route, and he bought it. I guess he probably didn't even talk to my mom, but I just bought this car. It was a 1932 Auburn. Now, for some people in that room, you say, what on earth is this? Well, go home and Google it, okay? You can get Google on everything, you know. But a 1932 Auburn was a classic automobile. There were three that were made in America. There was the Auburn, there was a Cord, and there was a Duesenberg. They're all classic automobiles from the 1920s, 1930s. This is a 32. Had those swooping fenders on it. You know, the big swooping fenders. And had two, uh, had on, the, on the, those fenders had the old uh, spare tires that were strapped on. And uh, it had a, what was called a brome top, which in that day was really something. It was a cloth top. And, and so he bought this automobile. But when he brought it home, man, it was a dump. I mean, it was a piece of junk. I mean, somebody had done a little work on it. But, I mean, this car needed to be restored. And so it was one of those cars that, you know, you, 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 you got to have a vision for and so my dad brought it home, and he began this process. Well, he's, he's in the process of raising kids and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so there was really little money. But he, on his route, on his truck route, there was a, he delivered to a, a wheelchair factory that did chrome plating. And so somehow, some way, they, they bartered. And so my dad would take the chrome parts from the car out there, and then they would redo them and, and, and rework them, uh, redoing the chrome on them. So he got the chrome done. 
But, but I remember as a kid going out in the garage and seeing that car, and, you know, we'd get behind the wheel, and we'd play like we were gangsters and stuff, you know, and sit there in that car, and, and, and we'd get on the fenders, and we'd, we'd kind of swoop down them, you know, like a, it, it, you know, it was just something to do, out, you know, in the summer, and just, it, it was, it, I'm just telling you, it wasn't much of a car. There was, uh, there was uh, springs coming out of the seats, and it, it just needed a lot of work. Well, as I got a little older, about the seventh or eighth grade, my dad came into some money, and so he began the process of restoring this automobile. And so I, I still remember, you know, that the chrome was done, so they had to get it painted. So he found somebody who did the paint job on it. And then, then I remember us going to the, the place that did all the upholstery. And, 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 you know, we picked out the upholstery, and, and, and he took those seats there, and they recovered them and put the carpet on the floor. They did, redid the top on the car. And, and then, so he had the, 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 the car was, you know, the, it was solid. There was no rust. And so it's now been repainted. He's got this, all the, the upholstery redone. But there was still, you know, one. One last thing, which was those wide white wall tires. I mean, the, I mean not, we're not talking about small, um, we're talking about like eight inch white walls, you know. And so he finally found a place, a special order those, those tires in. And I just have to tell you, when you pulled that car out of the garage and you pulled out the street, people just look at I mean, it was a jaw dropper. It was just one of those things that would get your attention. So my dad had that from the time I was probably about maybe seven or eight years old. Still had it when I went away to college. And and when I came back from college and went on the staff, uh, our church was going through a time in which they, they were trying to do some work on the parking lot. They, it just needed, you know, it just needed help. It just, it was that cinder stuff. And, and every time it rained, I mean, the water just set in puddles and just stuff washed away. And they were backfilling to kind of give us more property. And so they needed put to put some, they needed to put some sewers in. And then they needed, of course, uh, then pave all of it. And, and so the church was trying to raise this money. My dad didn't tell anybody, but my dad's, man, he loved that car. He loved it. My dad decided he was going to sell his car. And sold it and gave most of the money to the church to that project. No, nobody knew much, much about that. But I have to tell you, as a man who grew up in that home and knew how much he loved that car, it impressed me, his level of sacrifice, because he loved the work of God more than he loved something that was as precious to him as that. So I, I want you to see that it, those who are involved will have to hear the voice of God and obey. Would you notice there's the third thing? God blesses the person that surrenders what they have as little as it may seem. Look at verse number 12. Here's Elijah. He's found this widow. She's there at the gate as he comes into Zerapath. And, and he sees this woman and he asks her, will you fetch me a glass of water? And so... She didn't seem to, you know, I, I assume from what is stated here, it's not really, not really stated, but the implication is this woman knew who this man was when he came, right? So God said, look, I've commanded this widow woman. So it tells me that God's had to communicate with her somehow, saying, hey, there's a man's going to show up here. You, you need to take care of him. So here he comes, and that's him. I don't know what he's going to ask me. Can I have a drink of water? Well, that's easy. You know, I, I, I get the idea that at this point that water is even scarce here, but evidently there's still a well that has some water. So she's running to get the water. When she starts to go on her way, he says in verse number 12, notice what he says. That as she was going, verse 11, to fetch it, he called and said to her, bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thy hand. Now, and I want you to get, get, get this in your mind. I want you to see this picture. 
So I see this woman, she's, she's on her way to the well, and all of a sudden, he says, uh, by the way, I, I want something to eat too. Can you bring me a morsel of bread? And I just see her pivoting, and her eyes really bearing down on this prophet. I mean, this is serious stuff here we're talking about. I mean, this is, God has said, hey, sustain him. This is not some easy thing for this woman because we're told in verse number 12, she, she, she says, she says, as the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake. You've asked me for a cake. I don't even have a cake. I have a handful of meal and a barrel and a little oil and a cruise. And I'm, behold, I'm gathering two sticks that I may go and dress it for me and for my son that we may eat it. Notice the phrase, and die. Now, I don't know how hard times are going to get here in the future. I, I have no, I'm not a prophet. I just see what's happening right now. I just see an escalation of things in our society. I don't know if these people are tr purposely trying to bankrupt us or they're trying to ruin our lives or they're trying to destroy this country. I don't know what they're doing. But I know they're up to something. My wife and I, because we could see some things coming some time ago, we decided we were going to, we have, have a little bit of money, so we're going to go ahead and invest. So, so we, we bought a, a freezer full. We, we went down here to, to, not far from here, to a place called Dumas Meats, and we bought a, a, a part of a cow and put it in our freezer. So, you know, tomorrow, we, we look this week for some chicken breast. Good luck, exactly. I mean, this is America, for heaven's sakes. You can buy chicken breast any place, right? Not anymore. My wife went to two or three places, couldn't find chicken breast. We went to the West Side Market the other day just because we needed to pick up a few other things. We saw chicken breast in a, in a cooler there for $8.50 a pound. I'm just simply saying, I don't know how tough things are going to get in this country. But, but here's what I do know. If they cut things off tomorrow, I, we can live for a while. Because we got some stuff in our freezer. We have, a, we have some shelves in our garage that have some canned goods on it. You know, my mother lives with me. She's got some canned goods. So, so, so we could, could last for a while. This woman couldn't. The Bible says, this is all I have. I have, I have a little bit of meal, a little bit of oil. I was going to make one last little cake. My son and I were going to eat it. And we have no hope for tomorrow. We're going to die. Now, most of us would think it's unreasonable to say to a woman like that, make me a cake first. Why, why would God ask a person like that to, to take care of a man of God? Why would he? Th doesn't that seem a little bit cruel? I'll answer that. No, it's not. See, we have in our minds sometimes, we think some people are excused from giving. Well, they're too poor. They don't, they, don't have, they don't have the ability. I don't find God excuses anybody in the Bible from giving. Now, some people can give more than others, there's no question. But did you know sometimes proportionally poor people give more than rich people? Jesus pointed that out, didn't he, when he went to the temple. There were a little widow woman threw just in two little mites into the temple. And he said, hey boys, come over here, I want you to see this woman. She just gave more than everybody here together. Because she gave everything she had. I don't find any place in the Bible where God excuses us from giving. I'm saying to you, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm saying also to you, because we don't know doesn't stop us right now from doing what God is asking us to do. At the end of this month of missions, I'm sure your pastor is going to say, hey, it's time for us to 
figure out what we're going to do for God this year as a church for missions. And I'm here to tell you that God blesses the person as little as they have. You know, I, uh, I find that widow women all, almost always, or widows in the Bible, are almost always poor. You know, there, there was, there's a reason for that. You know, widows today sometimes are still poor in our society, but because we live in a, in a, a society where we've had some abundance, some, you know, sometimes widows, are, they've, they've, either their husbands have prepared for their demise and, and, and there's a life insurance policy or there's, a, there's an ability perhaps because of investments that, for the wife to be taken care of until the day she goes home. Uh, but but in, in the Bible, that wasn't the case. There was no social networking. If, you, if your husband died... You, you were either, if, if the family didn't help you, you were on your own. God had a plan for that. He, he said, look, if, if there's a field and, the, and they're harvesting the field in Israel, don't, you, you can't pick it clean. You leave the corners and the edges for the fatherless and the widows. They had to go out and gather it. So this widow woman, her, her potential was somewhat small. I was in junior high school when I first learned about the concept of faith promise giving, this idea of grace giving. I still remember when I was at Cleveland Baptist Church as a, as a junior high kid, and they, we had not been involved in this kind of idea of grace giving, but all of a sudden it's, this concept is introduced to our church, and the idea is that, hey, you know, we can give more to missions if we do so purposely than if we just kind of see what we have left over at, at every month to see if we can support some missionaries or we will commit to some missionaries. We can perhaps do a whole lot more. And, you know, I, I just be honest with you, I had this idea that, hey, if you give to missions, you, you get involved in this thing, money rains down from heaven. In other words, if you promise to give, a, you know, 50 cents, then you're going to find 50 cents. Well, as I, I was a junior high age kid, I didn't have a job, I didn't have any way of earning money. I had some lunch money. How many of you have ever met a junior high age boy who didn't like to eat? My parents didn't have a lot of money, so they, they allocated me a little bit of money every, every week for lunch. And when it was gone, it was gone. And so uh, that's all I had. And so I just said, you know what, We're gonna, I'm going to give a little bit of my lunch money to missions. And on my way to school tomorrow, I'm going to find that quarter that I gave la on Sunday. Well, it didn't always happen. There were some weeks that I had to go without. My junior year of high school, God got a hold of my heart, and I really got called to, to ministry, and I really focused on getting ready for college, and so I, I was working in the summer, my junior year, between my junior and senior year, full-time. When I went to my senior year, I worked a half a day. I went to school in the morning, went to work in the afternoon, and all day on Saturday, and, and, I, and for, for a high school kid back in those days, I, I just will tell you that I was heavily invested in missions. I thought this is important, but even though I'm going to college, I thought, I, this is my heart. I want to I be involved in this. And I never thought about not giving to missions. My wife and I got married when we were in college. And, and I have to tell you, you know, we, we, our, our, financially things got a little tough at times, especially after we found out she was with child after we, we got married. And, and we had a baby that was born while we were in school. And, you know, it was just hard. I, I was working a part-time job. She had been working in the hospital. And and then she's not working, and then, you know, we didn't know what we were going to do, we didn't know how it was going to work, but we were still involved in missions and tithing. We never thought about not giving. Came out of college, and now we're the big time, you know, we're going to be on a church ministry staff. Well, we moved to Cleveland, Ohio, where the cost of living was three times what it was in our little college town where we went to school, and 
rent was more expensive and babies were coming along and formula. And by the way, we didn't have we didn't have disposable diapers. We had cloth diapers. I don't know how many of those I dipped in a toilet through my life. I'm just simply saying, but we never, in all the time we were raising our kids, all of it, we never thought about not being involved. And it's not like we were rich, and I was like we had an excess. I'm just saying, we knew that this is what God wanted us to do. And God took care of us. I, uh, I want you to see the final thing. There are times when we, we give and trust God after we give to meet our needs. I want you to see that in the text. There are times when we, have, we give and then we have to trust God to meet our needs. So she says, hey, hey, sir, you don't understand. I have just a little meal in a barrel, a little oil in a cruise. I was going to go fix this and I was going to go fix it. My son and I were going to eat it and then we we're going to die. Well, notice how his response. He didn't say, well, he didn't say, well I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to excuse you. You don't have to do that. I, I didn't realize how bad it was for you. So, so it's okay. No, no, verse 13, Elijah said to her, fear not. Are you afraid tonight? You afraid about the future? I can tell, tell you by the grace of God, you don't have to fear. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. You don't have to fear what happens, uh, what's going to happen tomorrow. It's terrible what's going on in the Ukraine right now. It's terrible. But you don't have to fear. I'm just simply saying, God says, fear not. He says to this woman, fear not. Go and do as thou hast said. In other words, yeah, you, you can go ahead and make your little, you're, you go ahead and make your cake, but notice the but. In other words, yeah, you can do this, but what? But make me thereof a little cake. Notice the phrase first. He didn't say, well, you go make your cake, and then if there's something left over, you come and you, you can make one for me. Now, now it do, doesn't it seem a little brazen? It does seem a little brazen, doesn't it? Like, almost arrogant. I, I heard what you said. You don't have much. But I want you to go, and I want you to get what you have, and I want you to make a little cake for me first. And then once you bring it to me, go make one for you and your son. Now, how many of us believe, ladies, you're ladies here, you, you, you have the responsibility of, your, of feeding your family. How hard would it be to do what God told this woman to do? I think about it. She knows what's in the kitchen. It's not like there's, you know, a pantry after, okay, all right, yeah, I told him I had a little bit, but there's a pantry over here. I, I got my sudden, my, my, my extra stuff. No, that's not the case. So I want you to think with me. Watch her as she goes into that kitchen. Wherever she's preparing this, and she gets that barrel of meal, and she dumps it out, and sure enough, there's just enough there for one. And then she goes over to that cruise of oil and she dumps it out and there's just enough to make one cake. She fixes the fire, she bakes it, and she's got her son sitting there looking at it. Think about it. The boy's hungry. She knows this is it. This is all there is. Now she's got a choice. Do I give this to my son and me to eat, or do I take it to that man of God 
and give it to him first. Clearly, the Bible is obvious that she takes that cake and she takes it to Elijah. I don't know if he turned his back and ate it. I don't know how that, how that works, Brother Rice. I, I, the Bible doesn't tell us. I don't think he, you know, made an elaborate issue of like, hmm, is this good? But here's what I do think. I think when she gave him the cake, he said, no, you can go back to the kitchen now and make one for you and your son. I could just see her eyes about bulging out of her head. Look, I was just in there. There wasn't anything left. I'm telling you, you got the last of it. You're telling me to go back and fix for myself and my son? Yep. And she went, and she did. I get the impression that the entire time that Elijah was with her, that's the way it had to work every day. In other words, in order for her and her son to be sustained, every day she had to make one for him first. And by the way, did you know that that, that barrel never filled up? Did you know that? Every day it was empty. So every day she had to exercise her faith. But I'm just telling you that God stretched her and God grew her. And by the way, had she not done that, what do you think the alternative was? You say, well, you know, it's just unreasonable God would ask her to do that for this man of God. Isn't it arrogant that he would say, make one for me first? That's the human side. But the grace of God's side was saying, listen to me. Because by giving, you'll be receiving. I'll make sure that your needs are, are met. Here's what I want you to know, Anchor Baptist Church. When you get along with God and you pray and say, God, what do you want us to do this year for missions? When God lays an amount on your heart, when he tells you what to do, I'm here to tell you he is obligated to make sure that your needs are met. Obligated. You could say, well, I, I'm just not doing it. Okay, fine. Don't do it. It's, it's grace. You don't have to do it. But by not doing it, some of you perhaps will miss the blessing that God wants to have and to do in your life, where you see the mighty hand of God do things that no one else can do. I'll give you this illustration. I'm finished. When I became the pastor in 1995, we had just completed a, a, our school building, 40,000 square feet, we built it in house. We did it as economically as we possibly could, but we were still about $1.7 million in debt. Just after I became the pastor, we had prayed for 20 years for property to open up on either side of us because we just needed to expand our parking. We just didn't have enough. And maybe two or three years into my pastorate, some property became available to us next door. I said to our men, what do we do? And we, we've been praying for this, and we said, we, got, we have to do this. And we didn't have the money, so we went and borrowed money. So we're now... 1.7, now we're about, about 2 million, maybe 1.8 or so in debt. And I, I got to tell you, it, 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 was, it was heavy. We were pay, making a mortgage payment about twenty-one dollars to $22,000 every month, $10,000 for gas and $10,000 for electric. We had a, 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 you know, a huge you know, payroll that needed to be met, the overhead, the insurances, bus ministry, Christian school, Christian school wasn't paying for itself. They never do. <laughs> but I'm so glad for it. But we had all this stuff going on. And I kept meeting with our men. And we talked about it. And, man, I just tell you, there was just times when, you know, we'd see in the summer, we, 
we'd, we'd see these holes being dug, you know. In other words, we'd dig these holes because they didn't have tuition coming in, and, and so the, the hole would get big, and then school would start, we'd fill that hole back up, and we'd go through the process again, and every year it seemed like it was getting worse, and, and so we met with the deacons, and I said, look, guys, somehow we've got to get this church out of debt. We've got to figure out how, how do we get ourselves out of debt. We, we've got ourselves here, now let's, let's figure out how we get out. We started praying, and God laid a, a plan upon our heart to uh, present to our people. And so in 2005, God kind of solidified things. We put the, the plan together, and in January of 2006, I began to preach every Sunday to our church family on faith. I said, look, our theme for this, the, our, our program was faith is our bridge to the future. If, there's no bridge to the future without faith. You've you got to trust God. So I preached every Sunday morning, every Sunday night on faith. We just have to trust God. So we were going to lead up to... Uh, October, when we would have these meetings with our church family, small groups, where we explain what we're trying to accomplish. And we we're going to be, basically what we we're asking our church family is to give a million dollars over and above their mission and over and above their ties over the next three years. So in other words, a three-year program, everybody needs to commit to helping the church get itself out of debt. And we we're going to do some other things besides the debt reduction. But what we were looking at was getting to our... 2009, we had a 10-year note, and then we'd have a $600,000 balloon payment. And I said, we can't get to November 2009 and still have to go borrow $600,000. You just can't do that. We've got to pay that, that balloon off before we ever get there. So anyway, we, we laid this all out for our church family. And, and I have to tell you, I was a little nervous. I, I never had asked our church family to step up like that. And so they committed. It was like $1.2 million they committed to this offering over the next three years. And and I have to tell you that, you know, I, I thought to myself, well, I can't ask these people to give without sacrificing ourselves. And, you know, my wife and I, we, we were, our kids were all grown. They weren't in the house anymore. And so we had a little more. And, of course, we were working on trying to, you know, retirement, trying to make some catch up on retirement that we didn't do early in our life. And we were trying to get our house paid off and all those type of things. And so all that stuff basically came to a screeching halt because God laid an amount on my heart that I would need to give in order so that, you know, I could feel like I was leading the way. And honestly, what God asked us to give over those, seven, over those three years was just, in my mind, I don't know how we're going to do this. But I just felt like that's what God wanted us to do. And so we stepped up and we did that. So that was 2006. So the, the program really started 2007. So it was going to be 2007, 8, and 9. We'd be finished in 2009. So what happened in 2008? Anybody remember? Bubble busted, right? The mortgage thing. I mean, the whole country just started rocking. Well, Cleveland it was just, it was depressed in 2000. It took another step down in 2008. So I was at home one day, and I was studying and uh, preparing for um, Sunday. And I, back in those days, I did a lot of my studying at home. Our kids were grown and gone. We had an office there at the house. It was more conducive for me to study at the house than come to the office just because things, the way things were structured back in those days. As far as the, our office was concerned, I felt like I didn't get much done when I went into the office as far as study was concerned. So I just had finished studying. It was, um, I'll, I'll never forget this day. I left my study, went into the bathroom, and the financial secretary called me. She said, Pastor, we can't make our payroll this week. It's 50000 or $100,000 that we needed that we just didn't have. We had let some people go. Um, one of them was our business manager, and she had gone, our financial secretary had gone through a hard time. Her brother died suddenly, tragically, and I think she just kind of lost track of some things, and she didn't realize what was going on until it was too late. 
I went back to my office. I got on my knees and I said, God, we're doing everything we know to do. We've asked these people to sacrifice and to give. These people that need a paycheck this week, I can't, I can't do that. But I know you can. I finished praying, got went back to the bathroom to finish getting ready to go in the office. I was in there, the office, I'm just back in the, in, in the bathroom, finishing getting ready when my phone rings again. Same financial secretary. She said, Pastor, I can't explain this, but I just got a phone call. Somebody's giving us $100,000. Only God can do those things. I'm just saying that these are legitimate needs. These are legitimate things we're talking about. When people sacrifice, when people give, there's a God in heaven who can do more than anybody else can do. I'd much rather trust him than the federal government, the state government, Social Security, whatever it is that, wherever your trust is. And I get it. Look, we're all dependent, right? We all look for things. When it's, when it's time for the money to drop in the bank, we want it in the bank. But my, my confidence isn't in the Social Security Administration or in, in anybody other than God himself. And I'm just saying to you, hey, this month is about being stretched in your faith. There isn't anybody in here that's too poor to give, and there's nobody here that's too young to give. The children in this church need to be involved in faith promise giving. And every parent and every adult needs to be involved. And yes, God says, yes, give to me first. Because there may be a time during this month or this year when you commit that you may say, man, if I give that, I don't know how I'm going to take care of these things. Here's what I know. As long as God told you what to do, and you do what you're told to do. I'm not obligated. Your pastor's not obligated. But there's a God in heaven who's obligated to take care of you. And we sure see that in this picture, don't we? It's one thing to read about it. It's another thing to live it. Would you bow your heads together with me in prayer tonight? I don't know what God's going to ask you to do this, this month for missions. But we are living in some crazy times. And there are people that no doubt are fearful. Some maybe even in this room tonight. You don't know how things are going to work. And I don't know how they're going to work either. But I do know there's a God in heaven who can make things work. Our heads are bowed. Their eyes are closed. And I wonder, on this first Sunday night of your mission's emphasis, I wonder if there are folks who say, Preacher, pray for me. I... I want to do what God wants me to do. I, I don't know what it is, but, but I want to be obedient. I want to live by faith. I, want to, I, I know it's legitimate. I know that I, that I need to take these steps of faith, but I, but I am afraid. I, I, or I just, I'm a little concerned. I, I don't know how it's going to work. But I want you to pray for me that I'll have faith to believe God. Would you let me pray for you tonight? I won't embarrass you. Would you slip your hand up and say, that's me. Pray for me. God bless you. Thank you. Yes. God bless you. Some of you, you need to, if you're not involved, you need to get involved. And you really need to pray about it. More than just say, well, I, I'll do what I did last year. I'm saying to you, if that's what God leads you to do, that's fine. But if it's not what God's led you to do, it, you're just doing it, then God's under no obligation to, to take care of you. But when we do what God has told us to do, he is obligated. He obligates himself. 
I'm telling you, God can take care of that which needs to be taken care of. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, thank you for this evening. and Thank you for this church and for this pastor and for the history of this church and its involvement in giving. Lord, would you, would you bless tonight and as we think about this week and, or this month of, of emphasis, would you help this church, Lord, to respond accordingly. And Lord, may, may they see God do great things in their lives. Lord, I pray for the few that raised their hand tonight and said, I, I just need to, I need God's help. I need to know. God, honor that faith. Honor that commitment we pray tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Preacher, you come. As the piano plays, if God's spoken to your heart, the altar's open. Brother Folger started with this verse, Hebrews 11:6. 6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. Elijah's faith was a personal faith. That widow's woman's faith was a personal faith. How about you tonight? Personally. It takes faith trusting in God. Maybe you just want to pray tonight about your mission's commitment. I mentioned earlier today that these cards, you should have got one in the mail. If you did not, there's some back on the back table. Just pray about what God would have you to do. Ask God. Hey, young person, you can, you can get involved. Teenager. Adult. Adult. 